part of the human condition. We're always seeing things differently than other people. But have you ever found yourself in the middle of an argument and you realize, this is silly. I don't even know why I'm arguing for whatever it is I'm arguing for. And a lot of times it's because the, the subject of the argument isn't that important. It's just that we want to win. We just want to be on top of things. I mean, it's a very guy kind of thing. This is the way men communicate with each other, basically by arguing, by having some kind of contest. You know, uh, we'll, we'll argue about sports and about statistics. We'll argue about uh, what the best way to fix a car is. Uh, one of the interesting arguments that men do, maybe, ladies, you don't realize this, the men will. Um, it, 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 we'll start arguing about who did the dumbest thing in the shop. Uh, one guy will start out and he said, well, I... Uh, I had an accident the other day. I hit my thumb with a hammer. The other guy says, oh, really? Well, I stabbed myself with a screwdriver. The guy says, oh, no, no. Well, you stabbed yourself. I cut my finger off with a power saw. I mean, we'll just go on and on trying to prove that when it comes to stupid, I'm the winner. And I don't know why we do this, but we do. So have you ever had like a really silly argument that didn't make any sense? And then after a while, you understood that actually it was more a thing of pride and more a thing of just trying to come out on top of, of other people. Well, the Bible talks about um, believers in Jesus who had arguments with each other. Uh, I guess the, the, the most famous argument was between Peter and Paul in Antioch, and uh, Paul was there, and he was uh, preaching, and the people were responding, and then uh, Peter came along, and and he was, he was just right there with Paul, and they were preaching together. And some people from Jerusalem came in, and they said, Oh, no, 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 Jews can't worship with Gentiles, and, and we've got to keep them separate. And, and Peter, and we don't know why. You know, Peter might have had a good argument. We just don't know what it is, because Paul's the one who tells us about the, the situation. But, but Peter, for whatever reason, then he, he started worshiping only with Jews and not with Gentiles. And, and Paul stood up and said, How can you do that? And, and it's, it's just not not what the gospel is all about. And he goes on and writes the entire book of Galatians as a result of that. Um, there was also the argument that Paul had with Barnabas. You remember that uh, they had taken John Mark with him on one missionary journey. John Mark had quit. He'd come home early. And uh, then on the second journey, um, Barnabas wanted to take Mark along again. And, and Paul said, no, I don't. Barnabas said, yes, we shouldn't. So they, they actually had to agree to disagree. And they went their separate ways. Barnabas took Mark and Paul went off with, with Silas. Uh, now, if, if you're listening closely, you're starting to see that the common denominator in these two famous arguments is Paul. And maybe he needs to uh, uh, look at that. I don't know. Uh, but, but there were arguments. There, there were the, um, the Christians in Jerusalem who felt as though they weren't being served and their widows were not being taken care of by the, by the earliest church there in Acts chapter 6. And so there was a dispute going on there. Paul writing... Uh, to a, uh, the Philippian church, he says, to two ladies who each had a house, uh, had a house where a church was meeting. So they each had a house church. And uh, it, their names were Yodia and Syntyche. And Paul says to them, I, I tell these ladies to get along with each other because evidently they were arguing all the time and going back and forth. And, and on and on it goes. Arguing is, is, is sort of a very human kind of thing to, to do. And it shouldn't surprise us that it comes up in the body of Christ. There's a lot of discussion going on now uh, about, you know, what churches should do, what churches should not do, what should be the rules, what, what rules are, are unnecessary. And, and I tell you, if, if you've read as many different 
plans for opening churches right now, uh, as, as Randy has and as I have, uh, you, you, you just be overwhelmed with the fact that no, nobody sees it exactly the same way. There's certain things that, that are common principles, but everybody has a little bit different take on it. And, and if we're polite, we call that a discussion. And if we're honest, we call it a, an argument. We're, we're going back and forth. But there was a time when the disciples, the followers of Jesus, got into a really silly argument. I mean, there, there was no way to redeem it. At least some of these arguments, you can say, well, that's an important issue. You know, what are the health issues uh, having to do with opening a church? I mean, that's important. But there's a case and a time when the disciples, they, they were just being silly. Just out and out silly. And Jesus had to step in. It's in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. And uh, we'll, we'll read about it in, in just a moment. Uh, but to, to sort of get a running start into that, uh, we have to understand what the disciples had been through. Just in chapter 9, just one chapter of the, of, of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus had sent them out to go out two by two and to preach the Gospel and to heal people and to announce the coming of the kingdom. And they'd gone out on this sort of a, a, a ministry and they'd had great success and people had responded and they were prepared for when Jesus would come and would preach and teach in their midst and uh, they'd, they'd had just a, a great and wonderful time with all that. And then right after that, Jesus was preaching to 5,000 people, and the disciples looked at that, and they said, "What? Well, these people need to go home. It's lunchtime, and we don't have enough food. And, and Jesus said to his disciples, said, well, you feed them. He said, Jesus, we don't have enough food. And Jesus said, well, sure you do. Just give me what you got. And uh, you know the story. He multiplied the loaves and the fishes, and everyone was fed. And, and the disciples got to be at the front end of that. They got to be the, the contact people between the miraculous power of Jesus and, and the feeding and, uh, of the people and satisfying their physical need, even as Jesus would satisfy their spiritual need. And so they'd had that experience. Then Jesus took them to one side and he said, Look, guys, here, here's what it means to believe in me. If you want to come after me, here's, here's what it means. It means denying yourself, taking up a cross every day, and then just follow me. Just walk in my footsteps. Yeah, Jesus, that's good. We, we pretty much got that down. And, and so uh, they, they were pretty much set with that. And then a little while later, Jesus takes uh, Peter, John, and James. And he takes them to a mountain. This is all chapter 9, Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. Jesus takes Peter, John, and James. He takes them to a mountain. And while they're there, the glory of God just enshrouds Jesus. And, and the, the, the wonder and the beauty and the majesty of who Christ is was just made visibly evident to them. And then they saw the, the sanctioning presence of, of Moses and of Elijah and, the, and seeing that the law and the prophets were also just giving its praise and adoration to Christ. And so in, in seeing the, the, the majestic glory and beauty of Christ. Peter, John, and James had said, well, you know, well, let's just stay here. This, this is a place to be. And Jesus said, well, no, we got to keep going. And so they came down, and, and these guys were, they, they, were, they just didn't tell anybody else because they didn't quite understand it. And Jesus said, said, you know, don't talk about things you don't understand. But So they come down off, off the mountain. Now, this is called the Mount of Transfiguration it, it, because Christ is transfigured uh, so that his glory might be seen in, in, in a very evident way. And as they come down off the mountain, there's a big crowd that runs up to Jesus and says, we, we got a problem here. I mean, and this is the way it is, by the way. 
you have a mountaintop experience, and as you come down off the mountain, somebody's going to hit you with, with, with a complaint, with a problem, with something that needs to be dealt with. Um, I, I mean, you've, you've had that experience, haven't you, when you spent time in the Word and maybe you had a, a terrific Bible study as, you had, as we've been doing with Randy's 30-day challenge. And, and so we, 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 we have a terrific time of Bible study and we see the Word of God opening up in a way that we couldn't imagine before. And we just go out of the house and we're absolutely pumped to live for Jesus that day. And the first thing that happens is somebody comes in and starts complaining about something that doesn't make any difference. Or somebody else has a problem that needs to be solved. And before you know it, it, it the day's not, not even begun, and that wonderful mountaintop experience has been, been transformed in just a Monday irritating day. Well, these people came up to Jesus and said, we, they, they, you know, you've got to deal with this. And a man comes up and says, Jesus, I have a son with an unclean spirit. We'll shorten the story. And, and he says, and I, I brought him to your disciples. They tried to heal him, but they could not. Now, here's what I want us to see. After all the success the disciples had experienced out on the, on the mission that Jesus sent them out on to the villages to preach and to heal and success, and after the, the wonder and the, and, and the, the, the power of Christ to, to um, feed the 5,000 and they had this wonderful success, and the three disciples, Peter, John, and James, having gone to the Mount of Transfiguration and seen the absolute glory of Christ and a wonderful, marvelous, if you will, a success. And they come down off the mountain. And the man says, your disciples tried and they failed. They couldn't do it. I don't know how they tried to do it. Maybe they, they got together and, and said, well, uh, let, let's try it. We know this technique. Be healed. Now, it didn't work. And somebody else said, well, you know, you didn't do it right. The word healed is not one syllable. It's got to be two syllables. Be healed. You know, and then it would have happened. And somebody else comes along and says, well, no, you, you can't just say be healed. You have to do it from a deep down diaphragm, you know, be healed. You know, and, and you know, so they're trying all these techniques. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Jesus looks at him and he says, you know, how long do I have to put up with you guys? I mean, that's basically what he says. It's there in Luke chapter 9. He says, how long do I have to put up with this generation? You're faithless. You think it's all about technique. You think it's all about, about uh, uh, your authority and what you can do. You're missing the whole point. And then Jesus healed the boy. And the scripture says that everybody was talking about the magnificence of God, the majesty of God. They were talking about the glory of God. But this, this was a failure. And so the disciples are coming out of this situation. They've just failed. Everybody's talking about the glory of God because of what Jesus did. But these disciples who had been taken with themselves and very impressed with themselves had tried to work this miracle. It didn't work out. They had failed. And here's how they respond. This is uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Are you kidding me? 
Or are they kidding Jesus? I mean, they're kidding somebody. What, what could they possibly be saying? You know, I am the greatest? Why? Because you failed less than I failed? Maybe because you have uh, not uh, come to the realization of your absolute ineptitude? What, how, how do you convince somebody you're better when you have failed so badly? And I, I don't know, maybe, maybe Peter, John, and James are saying, hey, you know, guys, uh, you guys failed. We were with Jesus. You know, we get the first rank here going on. And, and the other guys are saying, well, no, we're doing the heavy lifting, and we're doing the dirty work, and we're, we're dealing with the crowds. And where were you? You're up there on, on camp, uh, having a camp meeting. I mean, how, how does this argument go? That's why I say it's a silly argument. And it gets even more silly when you have this argument in the presence of Jesus. You're talking about how great you are and how wonderful you are. And you've got all the answers. And you're in the presence of Jesus, who's the way, the truth, and the life. And, and, the, and the only thing you can say to Jesus is, I, 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 there's nothing to say. There's only one great person in, in, in this narrative, and it's Jesus. It's not the disciples. They're having this, this very human kind of, of thing where, where they're trying to advance themselves. And what it reminds us, that a lot of times when we're having an argument, you know, there, there'll be two levels to it. There'll be the issue we're dealing with, and then there'll be an issue of personal status. You know, it's not just, I think uh, that maybe our ideas are wrong here, or maybe our, our conclusions are wrong. Maybe we need to examine other facts. But down below, it's sort of like, well, I think you need to listen to me. I, I'm getting lost in the shuffle. I, I need to be heard here. And that's why when you're in the middle of an argument like that and you find yourself, you're losing on the facts, you start yelling louder. And then not only do you yell louder, you change the subject. You change it to some other problem where you think you can win. And that, that's why marital couples go round and round and round, by the way. But this was a silly argument that they're having. I'm the greatest. Really? But we do this all the time. And so in the middle of this silly argument, Jesus turns to them. This is verse 47. Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, and by the way, the word for reasoning and the word for argument are the same in Greek. But Jesus, knowing the argument of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. Now, I'm going to confess that normally when I read that, I have a picture of Jesus going and getting this very, very beautiful child and bringing, it's got to be a girl because she's the only one who would stand still long enough for this. But he brings her over and she just stands next to Jesus looking up in his eyes. Oh, he's wonderful. And she's beautifully behaved. But then I realized that's probably not what happened. Jesus went and he got some kid. It's a boy. <laughs> and that, this is a problem already. But he gets a boy. This is a kid. He's got his hat on sideways, his baseball cap on sideways. His face is covered with dirt. His, his jeans are torn at the knee. He comes over and he's fidgeting and he's looking around and he's a total embarrassment to his mother and to his father. His mother's thinking, how can I get him out of there? And his father is thinking, if you get him out of there, I'll take care of him. I mean, they, they, you got this squirmy little child because this is what kids do. Come on, be honest. 
This is what kids do. They're up on stage and you're wishing, oh, why don't you just do what you've been told to do? And and instead they're looking around and they're pointing and they're not doing anything. So he brings this kid up and he's squirming around and he just wants to get away and, and all this other sort of stuff. And Jesus said, look at this child. Now some of the disciples knew what was coming. You know, they, they'd been down this road before. They knew Jesus was going to say something, you know, unless you receive and believe like this little child, you'll never get the kingdom. He says, don't, don't you know that you have to become like this little child to enter into the kingdom? Okay, Jesus, we've heard that. We've, we've got that understanding that, you, that we need to become this dependent and on the front end of the learning curve and and still in development and a work in process and and not knowing and 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 ahead of ourselves and and, and all these other things yes jesus we get it we need to be a child to go into the kingdom so they settle back and they think that's what they're going to hear because that's what jesus has said before and it and it's true but jesus takes this child puts him next to him and he says this Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. You want to argue about greatness? You want to argue about who's the greatest going on here? This kid is great. This is what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. This absolutely apparent honesty, this sort of young excitement about life, this one who's totally dependent upon me, that's the greatest. Now that flies in the face of everything the disciples knew. Because what they knew was daddy's on top, you know, then there's mommy, and we would say then there's the kids, the dog, the cat, and the bird. But it's actually... Husband, wife, and then it is the household slave who tells the child what to do. The household slave is called the pedagogue. And uh, in, in Galatians, Paul talks about the fact that a child is led around by the household servants. Doesn't even rank above the hired help. That's how low down children are in the, in the cultural um, stratification of that day. And Jesus says, if you're like this, then you're great. See, Jesus always got these things wrong. He always got these things backwards. He was always saying, you know, if you want to be the greatest, you've got to be the least. He says, if you want to live, you've got to die. If you want to be rich, you've got to be poor. Jesus was constantly telling them, your whole scheme of things has got to be turned upside down because you've got yourself on top and God on the bottom and you need to understand God is on top and you are beneath him, his majesty, glory, his sovereign will. So Jesus is saying to them, he says, look, you've, you've got to be um, uh, understanding that you need to receive this. Now, this is, this is an amazing thing, by the way. He says, you, you receive this child, you're receiving me, you're receiving God. If nothing else, that should make us run out and hug our kids. You know, one of the things that, that we're really looking forward to around here is when we get back to the point where we can have our children with us in Sunday school teaching them and loving on them and having events here and, 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 and camps and, and uh, you know, and, and week-long vacation Bible study all about kids and, and, you know, all those things that we do for our children, the, the, the programs, the Christmas program, you know, 
All these things we do for our children, we are desperate to do again. Because that's, that's the way Jesus valued children. We, we, we just want that. And, and frankly, that, that may be the one uh, metric, the one way to measure that the church is back full blast and, and going full bore again. It's when we can really love on our children as a church family the way that we have been and the way God calls us to. So if nothing else, this, this is a call to, to take and, and to value and to work towards our children's ministry, ministry and getting it back as soon as we can safely and, and, uh, and appropriately. But there's something else going on here. Because you remember that Jesus had told the disciples, they remembered, you've got to be like a child to come into the kingdom. And so when he pointed to this squirmy little, little boy, he was saying, you've got to receive one another like this. You've got to be willing to stoop down and serve one another like this. You're in the middle of an argument about who's great. But in the middle of that argument, remember that the primary goal of the Holy Spirit in your life is to make you look more and more like Jesus, more like the Messiah. Jesus once told his disciples, he said, look, who's greater the person who sits down at the table or those who, who wait on the tables? I mean, the, the answer was obvious. The, the person who, who is sitting and being served is the greatest. And so Jesus said, who is the greatest? Isn't it the person who sits at the table, not the person who serves? And then Jesus immediately after, he said, but I am among you as one who serves. Now, what, what's with that? You know, the, Jesus just told us the one at the table is is greater, and yet he's the one who serves. And just in case they didn't get the point, on the night in which he was, he was betrayed, Jesus, knowing his own and loving them to the end, set aside his garments, and he took a towel and a basin, and he went from disciple to disciple, washing their feet and serving them. He said, look, guys, you, you call me master, Lord and master. That, you're, you're right, that's what I am. But if I, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. Even when you're in the middle of an argument and trying to figure out who's right, who's wrong, who's going to win, who's the greatest, who's the least, you have to understand you are called to be a servant to one another in the midst of all that. There's just no way really around that. And so this was a silly argument. It was silly just because... On the face of it, you know, who was the greatest of the, of the disciples? Well, <laughs> none of them were all that great. But it was a silly argument because that's not the way the kingdom operates. That's not what the Holy Spirit does in our hearts. It doesn't make us win arguments and make, us, uh, make sure other people know that we, we have the, the better mind and the better argumentation and the better technique and oh, whatever it is. What the Holy Spirit does is lead us to live in such a way that we're pointing to Jesus every time we open our mouths. Every time we do something, people are seeing Jesus in us. And so I ask you, have you ever had a silly argument? The answer is, well, of course you've had a silly argument. You're, you're a human being. And the question is then, how do you win in the midst of an argument? And the way you win is... Be, by declining to play the game. By saying, well, I'm, I'm just not going down the road 
of making this a contention. I'll share my ideas. We can go back and discuss ideas. You can have your arguments and I'll I'll have mine. But look, I am not here to win over you. I am here to be a servant. And you matter to me. So that even in the middle of the argument, the victory we have in Jesus Christ comes to the forefront because we're no longer relying upon human standards of greatness, but we're rather relying upon the person of Jesus Christ, the power and the work of the Holy Spirit, that we might honor and glorify the Father in all that we say and in all that we do. See, that's, that's the whole point. That, that's why later on, uh, Paul, when he wrote to the Philippians, he said, look, have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was God, he was in the form of God. He didn't think it was robbery, something to be clutched and hung on to is the prerogative of being God, but rather he emptied himself and became a servant, obedient even unto death. He says, have that kind of thinking inside of your head. It is why we follow the example of Christ, where we would rather serve than be served, and we would rather build people up than tear them down, and where we would rather show and manifest love and compassion for the family of God, even for the least of the family of God among us. Because those who are least in God's family are great. And we win in the midst of an argument when Jesus wins out in our hearts, in our lives, in our faith, in our conduct. So that even we fall into the arguments, Jesus reigns as absolute Lord supreme in our lives. Let's bow together in prayer. Gracious Father, we turn to your word and there we see who you are and we see who we are. And it is revealed to us the vast gulf, distance between your majesty and glory and our frailty and our shortcomings. So, Father, I pray we would be open to the work of your Holy Spirit to come into our lives, into our hearts, transform our thinking, transform our speech, transform our actions, transform our relationships so that Christ would be seen in us and as he takes hold of us and as we become more like him, Father, that you would be more and more glorified in us, that our lives would be lived for your glory. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.